Hello and welcome to episode 324 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. I hope all is well in your world and thank you for joining me again this week. For today's story, we head back to South London for a terrifying and seemingly random attack. But before we begin, let's set the context for today's story with our guest a month and year game. In the UK charts, Aswad were at number one with Don't Turn Around, keeping Bross from the top spot with the classic Drop the Boy. In the US, it was Rick Astley at the summit with Never Gonna Give You Up. And in Australia, the top-selling album of this year was In Excess with Kick. In the news this month, defending champion Mike Tyson beat Tony Tubbs by a technical knockout in round two at the Tokyo Dome for the undisputed world heavyweight boxing title. In UK politics, the SDP amalgamated with the Liberals to form the Social and Liberal Democratic Party, meaning that the Liberal Party had ceased to exist after 129 years of history. Plans were unveiled this year for Europe's tallest skyscraper, to be built in London Docklands at a place called Canary Wharf. Nah, never happen. The Bank of England £1 note ceased to be legal tender and it was revealed this month that the average price for house in Britain had reached a heady heights of £60,000. Barely a deposit nowadays, as some of you will well know. And in UK true crime news... British Army Corporals Derek Woods and David Howes were abducted, beaten and shot dead by Irish Republicans. Two men were sentenced to life imprisonment for murder, but they were released in 1998 under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement. So did you guess the month and year? It was March 1988. Today's story begins in the southeast of England at Petswood in Kent. It's about 16 miles southeast of Charing Cross in central London. And unlike where I live in Scotland, where greedy companies are destroying our lovely forests for profit, the woods that Petswood is named after is safely in the hands of National Trust and is a lovely place to walk. The train station is in the centre of Petswood. And at 2.16pm on Wednesday the 23rd of March 1988, 26-year-old Debbie Lindsley boarded an old-fashioned slam-door carriage of the Petswood to London Victoria train. If you recall these old trains, they had separate compartments and Debbie sat in a compartment with room for six people and doors either side of her. There were no passageways, there were no corridors leading from carriage to carriage. And when the train arrived at Victoria, Debbie didn't get off the train with the other passengers. At about 2.50 that afternoon, British Rail porter Ron Lacey was carrying out his routine checks of the compartments when he found the lifeless body of Debbie Lindsley lying in a pool of blood in one of the carriages. It had been an utterly brutal attack. The post-mortem would later reveal that Debbie had been stabbed up to 11 times in the face, the chest, the neck and abdomen, with the fatal wound being a stab to the heart, which had caused massive bleeding. 
It was clear she'd fought hard for her life as she'd a number of defensive wounds to her hands. And the murder weapon, which was never found, was believed to have been a very sharp knife with a blade of around five to seven and a half inches. All trains on the line that day were immediately cancelled and a search for the murder weapon and any clues for who had killed Debbie began. Commuters were stopped and questioned about whether they'd seen anything at all suspicious. For example, a man getting off the train in Victoria who surely would have been covered in blood after such an attack like this. And detectives started to piece together more about Debbie's life and her final movements. At the time of her death, Debbie was living her absolutely best life and she had so much to look forward to. Originally from near Orpington in Kent, just down the road from Pets Wood, Debbie worked as a trainee hotel manager at a hotel in Edinburgh. As you'll be aware, this is a tough gig for anybody, and it suits a certain sort of person, and it seemed to suit Debbie, who loved it, although the work was demanding. She missed her friends and family in England terribly, but Edinburgh is a fantastic place to live, and she'd adapted well to this new lifestyle. After several months in Scotland, Debbie was excited to be heading home to see her family for a few days. This visit also included some work as Debbie was attending a hotel management course in Hertfordshire, before heading southeast to the Orpington area to spend time with her family. And she had been due to go back south again two weeks later, as Debbie's brother Gordon was getting married, and Debbie was really looking forward to being a bridesmaid. During the trip, she'd been super excited to have a fitting for the dress she was going to wear at the wedding. Debbie's dad, Arthur, spoke a bit more about the time she spent with her family, saying, She was here three nights, and she was due to leave in the late afternoon to go back to work in Edinburgh. But on the course, she met the manager of the Sherlock Holmes Hotel in London, and she left earlier than planned to drop in and see this guy in Baker Street about a job there. So on the Wednesday afternoon, her brother Gordon had dropped her off at Petswood Station at 2pm. Here, Debbie had bought cigarettes and a train ticket and was seen getting onto the train at 2.18pm. Debbie was very fashion conscious and she was as usual impeccably dressed in a blue skirt, white blouse and a black leather jacket as she got into the second compartment of a carriage near the front of the train. It is sometimes hard to believe, I think, that smoking was allowed on trains and planes as recently as 1988, and Debbie sat down in the carriage where smoking was permitted. It's unclear whether anyone else was in the carriage with Debbie when the train left Petswood, or whether the person that murdered her joined later on in the journey. As she looked out of the window at the bright spring sunshine, on the familiar landscape as the train left Kent and moved into the London suburbs, Debbie could never have imagined that she would be dead in under 40 minutes. In fact, detectives worked out that she'd been on the train for just 32 minutes when she was killed. The timescale was narrowed as it was established that in the time she was on the train, Debbie had smoked two cigarettes and also eaten part of a sandwich so she would have been killed later on in the journey. 
It is believed that 70 people were aboard the train that day, with ticket collectors saying that around 30 to 40 people left the train at the final destination, London, Victoria. But despite numerous public appeals, only 26 of them have ever been accounted for, and it's thought that at least 20 people had failed to come forward. But the evidence from one passenger in particular seemed to be highly significant. 18-year-old French au pair Helen Jocelyne was on the same train as Debbie and sat in the neighbouring compartment. Just after the train left Brixton, which was almost 30 minutes into the journey, close to Victoria, she heard a woman screaming. This part of the journey after Brixton, which was the final and longest part of the journey between stops, around six minutes. So presumably whoever killed Debbie knew this. Helen told how she had heard piercing screams coming from Debbie's carriage for two full minutes, but she'd been terrified by the experience and too scared to raise the alarm. She said, I'd never heard such screams. They stopped for about five seconds and then started again. She called out as if for help. There were screams of fear and very, very loud. I wanted to use the alarm, but I remained glued to my seat. Imagine how Helene has felt ever since for not pulling that cord, but of course it's perfectly understandable behaviour. She was utterly terrified. The Met Police's senior investigating officer at the time, Superintendent Guy Mills, spoke about the murder as savage and brutal. And he commented that Debbie had no means of escape apart from through the side doors onto the tracks. If you know the area from Brixton to Victoria, you'll know it is very built up. And this was the case back in 1988 too. Lots of houses back directly onto the track, but the house-to-house inquiries conducted by the police revealed that nobody saw anything suspicious in the train carriage that day. When the train pulled into Victoria after leaving Brixton, Helen saw a man who appeared to be limping away from the compartment where Debbie was found murdered. She described seeing him as being of a large build, aged about 40 to 50 years old, with collar-length ginger hair and a moustache. However, though she looked out for him at Victoria, that station is always incredibly busy and she lost sight of this man among the crowds. There was another sighting of what appeared to be the same man earlier in the journey. At Penge East Station in South East London, not far from Crystal Palace, a witness described a stocky man aged about 30 with dirty blonde hair and a pale jacket. Was this the same person? This person attracted the attention of the witness as they were seen getting out of a single compartment on the train and going into an open compartment near the front. Was this Debbie's compartment and was this the murderer? And did the man actually get off at Victoria Station? Or as it slowed down on the approach, would he then have used the manual doors to jump out onto the tracks, I wonder, because surely he'd have been covered in blood. Detectives tried desperately to work out what could have been the motive for this frenzied attack. As always, those closest to Debbie were looked at, with her family and friends all quickly ruled out as suspects. 
Her boyfriend in Scotland was also eliminated from the inquiry. And despite examining every detail of Debbie's life, there seemed to be no one who wanted to cause Debbie any harm. Robbery was quickly ruled out as a motive, as when she died, Debbie had her purse, her jewellery, and £5 in cash that she'd borrowed from her brother. It seemed that the motive was likely to have been a sexual one, and Debbie had desperately tried to fight off her killer when he had tried to sexually assault her, which it appeared she succeeded in doing as she was fully clothed when she was found. Detectives concluded that this had been one of those thankfully rare but terrifying crimes where Debbie had been attacked at random. But they knew that this would make finding Debbie's killer all the more difficult. And there were no crucial early leads in those key 24-48 hours that could have cornered her killer. Debbie's last movements were reconstructed by police and a policewoman on Crime Watch retraced Debbie's final journey in the hope that it could jog a key witness's memory. But with no success, and despite all the other appeals since 1988 when Debbie was murdered, there had been no concrete leads and eventually the investigation was wound down. And as I record this podcast in January 2023, nobody has ever stood trial charged with Debbie's murder. As you know, murder inquiries are never closed until the killer is found. And in Debbie's case, the police do have an absolutely crucial piece of evidence. Debbie had fought so hard for her life that she'd injured her killer during the attack and his blood was found at the scene. Thankfully, samples were taken and later advances in forensic science allowed scientists to create a full DNA profile from these blood samples. So today, please do have a full DNA sample of the killer. This has enabled detectives to categorically rule out some of the potential suspects that you may have been thinking about who have committed similarly terrible crimes and could have been suspects in this case. But unfortunately, no match has yet been made on any samples held on the DNA National Database. As this database was only established in 1997, if Debbie's killer had been convicted of any offence prior to that date, then his profile would not have been present on the database. And there is, of course, always the possibility that the killer may now be dead himself and may never face justice. At the 25th anniversary of Debbie's death, there was a big push on the inquiry. The police offered a £20,000 reward for information leading to an arrest, charge and conviction. Heading up the team was Detective Chief Inspector Chris Burgess of the Specialist Crime Review Group. He said, I'm convinced there would have been people that knew at the time or had a good idea who might have been responsible. We need people to come forward who may have seen or heard something. It doesn't matter how long it has taken them to speak to the police. The person that committed this crime, I believe, would have had blood on them. They would have been injured and it's likely they behaved in a different way after the murder. So I think there are people that know or think they know who might have been responsible. Because of the severity of the attack, it's unlikely that this was the culprit's first violent offence. There must be a partner, relative, 
or a friend out there who knows of someone who returned home with an unexplained injury and we are appealing for that person or persons to come forward. But still nothing. In 2018, her dad Arthur Lindsley made an emotional appeal on the 30th anniversary of her murder. He said, My daughter was murdered 30 years ago, and despite the DNA profile of the suspect being available, the person responsible has still not been found. I appealed in 2013 for those with suspicions about a partner, a friend or a relative to please come forward, and I renew that appeal on the anniversary of Debbie's death. So what can we say for sure about the killer? I think it's difficult as any analysis raises more questions than answers. It appears to be a premeditated crime, yet an opportunistic one as well. It's premeditated as the killer was at large with a large knife in the middle of the day which he must have been planning to use. But it was opportunistic. Because why attack a woman in broad daylight on a train where a passenger could easily board the train at any time and disturb the killer? And he must have known there's a real risk of any noise carrying to other carriages. And if someone had come to investigate, then what would he have done? Would he have attacked them too? Was this a man with an overwhelming compulsion to kill, regardless of the risk of detection and apprehension? A crime like this seems unlikely to have been a first-time offence. Does the overkill and lack of caution suggest a level of immaturity and so perhaps a younger killer? It's possible to speculate further on the man involved. For example, it's likely the killer might have been unemployed and unable to hold down a steady job. After all, he was able to travel the rail network on a midweek afternoon. Why would this have been? But once again, more questions than answers and we risk just getting into unfounded speculation. And physically, do we really have any clues? What about the description of the man seen by Helen? Well, he may have been the killer, but he may just have been the first person she noticed in a high state of fear and shock. He could have been just another person in the crowd Victoria Station would have been so busy that Wednesday afternoon and perhaps even busier than usual because on that day England were playing the Netherlands in a football friendly at Wembley Stadium. And despite the description being widely circulated and publicised, he was never identified nor came forward. No one else came forward to say they'd seen a stocky man limping away from the direction of the incoming train And of course today, after all the years have passed, that man, if still alive, would now look very different. Speaking to the Guardian newspaper a number of years after Debbie's death, Debbie's parents, Arthur and Marguerite, spoke about their experiences of the investigation following the death of their daughter. Like all of us would, they thought that the merger would be caught the justice system would kick in and there would be a conclusion. But this never happened, and this led to a sense of real disillusionment. Right from the beginning, we thought it was a stranger, said Marguerite. But the police followed a set pattern, working outwards from family and friends. I wanted them to take blood from all the men in Orpington, but they said it was too expensive. 
Then there was a detachment of most of the officers involved. I got a bit cross with the first lot because they said we mustn't get emotionally involved, said Marguerite. Arthur added that when Debbie died, back then the victims' families were a bloody nuisance who got in the way, so they drip-fed us information as they felt necessary. The family clearly weren't being kept in touch enough, as at one point they were not even told when the senior investigation officer retired, and they didn't know who was actually running the investigation. It didn't strike me until six months that they probably wouldn't get anyone, said Marguerite. And when she was asked about the possibility that her daughter's killer may in fact be dead, she said, People tell me to get rid of my anger, but I'm staying angry. I have a right to be angry. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Debbie, of course, should have been safe at any time of day or night on a standard train journey. But to think this happened in the middle of a spring day is hard to comprehend. In the months before Debbie's death, British Rail had slowly been working on phasing out the types of compartment carriages used during Debbie's final journey. Within a week of the murder, they announced that the number used on off-peak journeys would be reduced in order to minimise the chances of passengers being isolated and at risk. In direct response to Debbie's murder, they also ordered train guards to proactively patrol train compartments and they urged women to be particularly observant while travelling alone. But of course this didn't help Debbie, murdered at just 26 in the absolute prime of her life. I think it's terrifying to think how she must have felt when the attack started. All alone with her attacker in that carriage, with no chance of any help arriving until the train arrived at Victoria. It must have been so, so scary for her. Debbie was buried Holy Trinity Church in Bromley near her parents' house, wearing the bridesmaid's dress she was meant to wear to her brother's wedding. The one she'd been so excited to try on the last time she saw her family. And tragically, Debbie's mum, Marguerite, died in 2013 without ever discovering what happened to her daughter. Will the murderer who caused such misery to so many people through his violent actions ever be caught? We must, of course, always remain hopeful that there will one day be justice for Debbie. If you do have any information about what happened to her, you can contact Crime Stoppers anonymously on 0800 555 111. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this case and any other aspect of UK true crime, please join us on our Facebook group where 86,000 of us discuss all things UK true crime 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And to support this show, my weekly podcast, please join me at patreon.com slash UK true crime. For under £2 per month, and you can cancel at any time, not that you'd want to, you will find over 50 full-length bonus episodes and tons of other exclusive content. Just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime today. Okay, so that's all for me for another week. So until we speak again on Tuesday, please do take it easy. And despite the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now.